good to be here. And uh, before I sort of get into the message this morning, I feel there's a need to um, both ask for prayer and also to confess uh, a little bit as well. And when I talk about asking for prayer, I'm reaching out mostly to the guys, to the men in the congregation this morning. So I'm reaching out to you and I'm asking for your prayers and I'm asking for your help. Uh, There comes a time when we kind of fall into things that we didn't think we would fall into. And sometimes um, it happens more so than we wanted. And, uh, and so with this need for prayer is also a, a confession, and I hope it's nothing too shocking for anyone here, but I can't stop watching Downton Abbey. <laughs> and so I'm asking for prayer. I'm addicted to watching Downton Abbey. I cannot stop watching Downton Abbey. Um, any Downton Abbey fans in the congregation? Yes, okay, and over here, and a few over there, all right. Um, for those of you who don't know what Downton Abbey is, it is a television show, um, kind of like, um, there was a show back in, I think, the 80s, maybe 70s, down, downstairs, upstairs, or upstairs, downstairs, thank you. And... Um, and it's kind of the same idea. It's all about, it's in the early 1900s, and it's about sort of the rich English aristocracy that live upstairs, so to speak, and then there's the, uh, the servants who, who serve them downstairs, and it's all about, Downton Abbey's the same kind of idea. It's all about their lives that kind of intersect and, and, the, and the problems that they, that they have. And, and um, anyways, I, I hate to go kind of Adam and Eve here, but I blame Kate 100% for... <laughs> having me become addicted to Downton Abbey, but really I know that deep down it's my fault because I watched like two episodes in a row with her, and that was just enough to get some of the story arc that now I care. I care to find out what happened, and this is all reminiscent of like what happened with Pride and Prejudice years ago with the A&E version. I did the same thing. I watched for like half an hour, and then I was addicted and, and wanted to find out what happened with Mr. Darcy and, and with Elizabeth Bennett and all that, so... Anyways, obviously I, I jest to a large degree here, but guys, I think I could use a good action movie or something, so maybe some retro Schwarzenegger or something like that um, help me out. So, But, um, but it's funny because Kate and I were watching Downton Abbey last weekend. <laughs> we actually watched it last night too. Oh, and um, for the record, we're only into about halfway through season two, so please no spoilers. No spoilers. Don't even talk to me about what's going on. You, you put something on Facebook the other day. Oh, I didn't expect that to happen, but thankfully you didn't put what it was, so I was like, ah, I can't look at that. So um, please, just help me out there, or you'll see how quickly unchristian I can become. But, um, but Kate and I were watching it, and I was, I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm putting together this message on the discipline of service. I think there's going to have to be a Downton Abbey reference in this message. So here we are. But, um, but it's interesting because you watch Downton Abbey and, and you see kind of these different views on service from the different perspectives of the characters. And so you have Lord Crawley, who is the lord of the estate of, of Downton Abbey, and, and he knows his position and he knows the position of his servants, but he still has kind of in a subtle way, he has relationship with them. He, he, has, he honors them and he respects them. He treats them well. And then there's his mother, the Dowager Countess, um, played by Maggie Smith. I can't remember her, her name. But um, anyways, she, she does not look on them favorably upon the servants. There's no mixture of social classes for her. 
Um, it's not something that you do. And she looks down on them and she kind of insults them. And then you have like the flip side of it. You have Mr. Carson, who if Sam the Eagle from the Muppets ever became a human, this is exactly who he would look like and what he would sound like. And you have Mr. Carson and he's the head butler. And then you have Mrs. Hughes and she's the head housekeeper. And they love their job. They have this great sense of, of pride about what they do. They're not ashamed of it. And, and even though people look down on them and talk down on them at times, they know that what they do brings Downton Abbey the respect and honor that it deserves. And so there's nothing wrong with that. They are happy to have a, a life of service. Service for them is simply a way of life. And this is what kind of caught me. It was like, huh, service as a way of life I don't know if I could do that. Because we don't often aspire to be servants, many of us. That's not usually what we say when we're growing up. When I grew up, I want to be a, a servant. But acts of service, there's a place for that. There's a time when we can choose to serve. We can, we can help someone that's on our heart or, or help an organization or whatever that's on our heart. There's something that we can do to, to kind of help with that. And that's something I certainly aspire to do. That's good. And I, and and. The thing is, though, is that when we look at the life of Jesus and how he served, there's a needling question that pops up. What if service is supposed to be a way of life? And what if it really is more than just choosing when we want to serve? Last week, in the, uh, in the message last week, we talked about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. This is a, a passage that we've come to oftentimes because it's just so radical. It's so amazing how Christ took that upon himself to take the lowliest position and to wash his disciples' feet. He takes off that rabbi robe and he puts on the, the servant's towel and he, he just lowers himself to that place. Who chooses to do that? But the discipline of service takes us beyond choosing to serve. The discipline of service invites Christ to take our pride and our desire for, for control and self-glorification. The discipline of service invites Christ to take all these things, all these things that the Bible would call our flesh and transform us into someone who could daily wake up and say, Lord, allow me to serve for you, however you want me to, even if it means washing someone's feet. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Foster wrote, in some ways we would prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny father and mother, houses and land for the sake of the gospel than to hear his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure, and if we forsake all, we even have the chance of glorious martyrdom. But in service, we must experience the many little deaths of the going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, and the trivial. It's easy to choose to serve when we know we're contributing to some grand objective, some great cause, or some wonderful ministry, especially when it makes us look good to others and when it makes us feel good about ourselves. But it's a lot harder to be a servant who may be daily asked to get down into the nitty-gritty in order to serve God and bless others. 
The freedom that comes through the discipline of service is a deep humility as we allow ourselves to be used by God to serve his kingdom as he sees fit. That humility grows within us and it blossoms outward. And that's what makes all these outward disciplines of of simplicity, solitude, and submission that we've been looking at the last few weeks. That's what makes them so important to practice them is because they all work to help us give up this illusion of control that we so desperately want to hold on to and instead grab hold of Jesus. Otherwise, our flesh just gets in the way of true service. And we find ourselves saying, yes, Lord, I will serve you as long as I get what I want out of you. But that's not what Jesus wants from us. That's not what he calls us to, and that's not what he showed us. He served us simply because he loved us. And so as we look through this next uh, passage coming up, let's have this question on our mind. Am I satisfied with choosing to serve Or am I truly willing to become a servant for Christ? When we talk about the flesh getting in the way of what it truly means to serve in the kingdom of God, one story that comes to mind is the story that Carolyn just read for us. The story about James and John asking Jesus for a place of honor in his kingdom. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. But let me set this up for you. Because... In the passage passage that we just read, if we read the the first three verses that come before that passage, the preceding three verses, it sort of puts the whole thing into a different context. In the preceding three verses, Jesus has just spoken to his disciples in great detail about about how he was going to Jerusalem to be killed and then resurrected. And this is something that he's done a, a few times now. So you have to imagine that there's this there's this level of, of tension in the air. It's uncomfortable. And then if we really get into the heads of the disciples, we might see that it's hard for them because the Messiah, whom Jesus is, is not supposed to go and die. The Messiah, to put it bluntly, is supposed to kick some Roman keister, right? That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. So why does he keep talking about death? Because the Messiah frees Israel from the bondage of her enemies. Jesus can't seriously be talking about going up to Jerusalem to be mocked and spat at and flogged and killed. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to lead a revolt against the Romans. And James and John have realized that when Jesus does all this, he's going to be basking in some pretty serious authoritative power. And they might like to be a part of that. Can you blame him? But it's in this delicate moment, after Jesus has just finished kind of pouring out his heart about what he's going to do, that James and John approach him. In verse 35, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now that's a loaded statement. I think my children have come to me a few times and done that. Dad, we want you to do something and we want you to say yes. Probably because mom just said no. But there's something childish about it. It's right up there with, I need to talk to you about something, but you've got to promise not to get mad. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. 
You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And as we look at this exchange, you kind of get the feeling that as James and John are speaking with Jesus, they kind of see themselves riding along beside him on noble steeds in a ticker tape parade while all the people cry out, Hail the Messiah who freed us from the Romans! But Jesus knows that his victory is not to be over the Romans. His victory is to be over the sin of the world. And the road to that victory is through the ultimate expression of servanthood. Not just giving your time, not just giving your talents, but giving your life. Can you drink that cup, James? Can you endure that baptism, John? Interesting to note that James would become the first apostolic martyr. And John, of course, in the end was exiled. But let's keep going because we're getting to the heart of what we want to look at. In verse 41, it says, When the ten heard about this, when the other disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I love this verse. Here are the other disciples all coming to Jesus' defense saying, Hey, lay off the guy. He was just expressing himself here, and what you're doing is at the very most offensive, at the very least insensitive. But then I wonder, I don't know about the disciples, but I know about myself. And if I saw others asking Jesus for a position of power, I think I'd be kind of like, oh man, they just got the best seats. <laughs> I got to run and find out what's left for me. I start to wonder, is that what was behind the disciples being indignant? Because we see this in other Gospels. They're always arguing with themselves, it seems, about who's going to be greatest, who's going to be the greatest. And you can imagine this argument kicking up, and the dust is starting to fly, and the sand is getting kicked around, and Jesus finally <clears throat> clears his throat and calls them over. And he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't appear to get angry. He doesn't say, all right, join Peter. All of you get behind me, Satan. Instead, he redefines what greatness truly means. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, those who rule over the Romans and rule over you, that they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you, disciples. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Selfish ambition? Lust for power or authority? Not so with you. These things don't work in God's kingdom. And before we go tisk tisk to the disciples over their behavior, let's remember that it doesn't take much to have selfish ambition. 
Selfish ambition doesn't mean some grandiose diabolical plan to take over the world. Sometimes selfish ambition is as simple as breaking the speed limit on the way home so you can save five minutes in your day. And a lust for power and authority, sometimes it's as simple as just trying to be the loudest voice in the room at the expense of all others. But these things aren't great, and they don't put us first in God's eyes. But to be great means to serve, and to be first means to be a slave. Jesus is calling his disciples, and he's calling you, and he's calling me to look at power and authority in a completely different way. And it has nothing to do with self-glorification. The only power we need to be concerned with is the power of Christ working within us to bless him and to bless his kingdom. And the only authority that matters is the authority of Jesus, who though he deserved in every respect to be served, came to serve. And when we look at this with our heads and not our hearts, it just boggles the mind, because this is worldly wisdom. And our flesh, our, our sinful desires, it craves worldly wisdom, doesn't it? You're not going to see this taught in any of the colleges or universities here in town. I mean, let's be honest. When we read, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Do you feel yourself bristling at that concept? Do we not naturally recoil? Even at the word servant and especially the word slave. And we've talked about this word before, but it's important to note here that when we talk about slavery in this case, we're not talking about being forced into, into service against our will. Jesus doesn't do that. But rather, there was a concept of, of voluntary slavery that Jesus is using in this passage here and that Paul later used in some of his letters. In biblical times, rather than take their freedom, many slaves would choose to stay with their masters after their time of service was up. And if you still recoil at that concept, we shouldn't, because the majority of us sung something along those lines last week. Do you remember? I'm giving you my dreams. I'm laying down my rights. I'm giving up my pride for the promise of new life. And I surrender all to you. See, you've got to be careful what you're singing on a Sunday morning. You never know what you're uh, signing up for. But this is what we talk about when we talk about surrendering to God. But serving a loving master is one thing. Serving everyday people in everyday life, that's another, isn't it? And right away we can get a picture of, of someone that we would really rather not have to serve. Right away we can think of somebody. We don't want to help them. We don't want to bless them. We don't want anything to do with them. But Jesus says, not so with you. And calls us to be more than that. True service in the kingdom of God is to lay down, one life, lay down one's life on behalf of another. However that looks on a daily basis. To do that, we need a great deal of humility. Like the kind you get when you kneel down before someone to wash their feet. The kind of humility only comes by surrendering ourselves to the will of God. Only when we do so does the desire for authority and power start to fall to the wayside and our need for control, it begins to erode. In essence, we give up the illusion of freedom that these things create to become servants or slaves for Christ. 
And when we begin to walk that kind of talk, Well, just like our beloved Mr. Carson and our Mrs. Hughes from Downton Abbey, we may just find ourselves seeing service as a way of life. I, uh, I usually try to put a great deal of application into my messages. Um, how does this relate to daily life? How do we do this? How does that work for all of us in different life stages and all that kind of thing? And I'm not really going to do that this morning. I think we can all think of ways that perhaps we could serve the Lord. From the very young to the very old, it doesn't matter whether we pray or whether we we do something that's more action-oriented. We can all serve. But I think what I would say is that it's best if we serve like a sheep. Yeah, you heard me. (laughs) We need to serve like sheep. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came, and you visited me. And the people asked Jesus, When do we do this? And he answers, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's what he says to the sheep. Then he has quite the opposite conversation with the goats. He tells them, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and you didn't look after me. I was in prison. You didn't come to visit me. And then he tells them to depart from his presence. I've experienced God's presence. And I very much want to stay within it. And I think we have all experienced God's presence together, even this morning. I think we want to stay within that presence. I don't want you to hear this as a threat. Do this or else. That is not my intention this morning. But I believe this is what it means to serve in the kingdom of God. To serve like a sheep. To look after the least of these. And maybe this means reaching out to the poorest of the poor in Victoria or in India or in Africa or in the Philippines or maybe it means reaching out to the person who's sitting beside you right now. Maybe today that is the least of these that God is calling you to serve. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your child. Children, maybe it's your parents. Are we satisfied with choosing to serve 
Or are we truly willing to become servants of Christ? How does that start today? What does that look like for you? I can't say. But I believe we see an example of what it means. We serve a good master, church. We serve a really good master. These last four weeks in ministry for me have been some of the most exciting, most fulfilling weeks that I've experienced both on a a personal level and on a professional level. And it's not all been good stuff. Some of it's been really, really hard stuff. But the common denominator in all of it is that God is good. Amen? Amen. God is good. We serve a good master. And so we should. Because he who deserved to be served instead chose to serve us in ways that we can't even ask or imagine. Before we sing the last two songs that we're going to sing, I want to encourage you just to take a minute to invite Jesus to to help you practice this discipline of service. To invite him to show you what this means in your life, to invite you to, to invite him to create in you this, this deep humility that is needed, that just penetrates our heart and causes us to joyfully serve him for no other reason than because we love him. Amen? Let's take a minute just to be quiet and then team, would you come and, and sing for us, with us? Amen.